We are going to hear from the Gospel of Mark, and I have the privilege of asking our scripture to be read this morning by one of our own, one of our own college students who's home. Uh, I know there, there is no one more excited about him being home than his own parents, and that's Stephen Lynn, as Stephen is going to come and read to us from the Gospel of Mark. Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. That's not correct. Is it? No. Oh. That's not right. And it's chapter 4, right? Right. Yeah, 21. Slide is incorrect. All right. Chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. My mistake. <laughs> he said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With measure you use, it will be measured to you. And even more, whoever has will, given, will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground, yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that all the birds in the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. The word of the Lord. A couple years ago, some uh, scholars at Columbia Theological Seminary uh, put forth the argument that the pervasive mood, the predominant spiritual state of most Americans is one of despair. Several examples were given to support their thesis. One of them was that U.S. culture is one of increasing social isolation among individuals. Most people, they argued, have fewer, if any, real friends to turn to in times of need. Trust between individuals and towards institutions of which we are a part, including the church, continue to erode. The average person in the survey, the research that they did, the average person described their life as either being increasingly chaotic or repeatedly monotonous. So, if they're right, and I think they might be on to something. Despite all of our caroling this time of year, to the contrary, it would seem that most people, maybe not here, maybe so, maybe around us, most people are living lives of quiet desperation rather than experiencing tidings of comfort and joy. What a bummer to start a sermon that way. <laughs> I mean, okay, let's be honest. I want to just, this, the holiday season is wonderful. As I said this morning, it's wonderful for us to be together. We relish the time that we have with so many guests, with family and with friends, the time that we have to celebrate together. And we admire 
during these weeks that we've had. We admire and we join many of us in the outpouring of compassion and charity towards others. But deep down, if we really go there, if we have conversations at this level, don't many of us sense, isn't there an undercurrent that we're, we're seeing more and more explicitly in front of us or, again, silent, in, in, in more intimate conversations? Deep down, don't many of us sense that Christmas is no longer primarily a religious or even a family celebration? I mean, can we be honest that what drives our observance of Christmas is not so much what happens at church? It's not even what happens in our homes. What drives our observance of Christmas is what happens thanks to the high priests of advertising. What they dictate to us through television, in the malls, or on the internet. And I think I can present a definitive case of this. We can look no further for the proof of this than to listen to our own children and grandchildren when they are asked, how was your Christmas? And their routine response is measured by what they got. As we call to mind, as we have over these last few weeks, the hope and the dreams foretold by the prophets with the coming of the Messiah and yet recognize that what draws the biggest crowds during the Christmas season are in fact not their messages, not what the scriptures proclaim, but what draws the biggest crowd these days at the Christmas season are the deals between Black Friday and Cyber Monday. How can we not look around and ask, is this all there is? Now, for some of us, that may not be the question that we're asking. That may not be our question. We may, some of us this morning may be content, just as we are, to wait for the celebration that arrives on Christmas Eve, which we're only days away from, to wait for that celebration here at church and then wait for it to break out in joy on Christmas morning in our homes. That may be where some of us are this morning. But others of us, and I'm sure that there are some here, others of us, we're looking, we're waiting for more. More than last-minute bargain shopping. More than sweet and sticky gingerbread houses. More than generic winter wonderlands. More than magical elves on shelves. Some of us are looking for the promise of Christmas that seems so real this time of year, but is so very, very elusive. Take, for example... Just so you know, it's not just us. Take, for example, one of America's finest and perhaps best-loved poets, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Now, several of the younger people in this room may not even know who that is. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, back in the day, and I, I, I'm going to hope I'm going to get some am amens on this, back in the day, children used to memorize his poetry in school, right? Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote poems like Paul Revere's Ride or the Song of Hiawatha. Well, in 1861... Just as Longfellow's career was at its peak, his family suffered a very personal tragedy. An oppressive heat wave in Massachusetts prompted Longfellow's wife, Fanny, to trim the heavy locks of their seven-year-old daughter, Edith. And Fanny decided, as they often did back then, to preserve little Edith's locks, her curls. And as she heated wax to seal the envelope, hot drops fell unseen onto her dress. And before she knew it, a sudden breeze set her smoldering dress afire. In an effort to protect her young daughters from the flames, Fanny rushed into Longfellow's study, and Longfellow first tried to extinguish the flames with a rug, and then when that failed, he threw his body onto his wife, severely burning his face, his arms, and his hands. 
But Fanny, the great love of Longfellow's life, died the next morning. Longfellow's grief and his injuries were so great, he was unable to attend her funeral. In the journal that first Christmas after his wife's death, Longfellow wrote these words, how inexpressibly sad are all holidays. I can make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. On the anniversary of Fanny's death in the Christmas of 1862, Longfellow wrote, a Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. In late 1863, during the thick of the Civil War, Longfellow received word of yet another tragedy, that his elder son, his eldest son, Lieutenant Charles Longfellow, had been severely wounded and crippled in battle. He made no entry for Christmas that year. And then on Christmas Day, 1864, Longfellow wrote the poem, Christmas Bells. Here is one of the stanzas from that poem. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Far removed from the world we live in, and yet for many, his words strike a chord. We sing about peace on earth and goodwill to mankind, humankind, yet let's be honest, when December 26th arrives, it will be back to the real world, a world that is so different from the Christmas promise, a world where suffering, hunger, poverty, and injustice still run rampant. Darkness appears to overshadow so much of creation, leaving more and more people to silently ask, in between all the lights and all the tinsel, has Christmas really changed anything? And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that we can find an answer to that question here in the Gospel of Mark. If we can understand Christmas as the coming not only of Jesus, but as the coming of the reign of Christ, if we can insert the word kingdom in place of the word Christmas, we can discover as we've returned to the Gospel of Mark this morning that the questions some of us are asking are the same kind of questions that Jesus is addressing in the hearts of his disciples through his teaching. Keep in mind, I don't know if you've ever thought about this when you think about the context for Mark, Jesus is offering these words, these parables, on the other side of his arrival as a baby in Bethlehem. Now, while no one was celebrating Christmas back then, certainly not celebrating it in the way that we do, between the shepherds glorifying God, between wise men bringing gifts and Herod's murderous rage to try to find the long-prophesied king, I think we can imagine that the word got out. That people back then began to get hopeful, became expectant about the emergence of the Messiah. And yet when Jesus teaches these words, offers these words, it's been over three decades since that kind of news circulated. 30 years later, and the excitement, we can imagine, has probably died down. I mean, one crazy King Herod has given way to another. Rome continues to put down hard any and all manner of uprising and rebellion. I mean, let's be clear here. Mark doesn't reveal any explicit questions being asked by the disciples. The only question that Mark's told us the disciples ask, if you remember from last week, is this. We don't get it. Mark doesn't tell us any explicit questions, but just based on that question alone, the disciples, when Jesus begins to teach, saying, we don't get it, I think we can basically surmise that things are not lining up according to expectations. 
We can safely infer that the disciples were wrestling with unspoken questions like these. If this is God's will, then why isn't the religious leadership on board? Why are they the biggest and loudest critics of what's happening? If the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus, then why doesn't it look like anything's changing? I mean, John the Baptist is sitting in prison. The Roman Empire looks mightier than ever. If this is the appointed time, if this is the Kairos moment, if the Lord God is on the move, why aren't we heading towards Jerusalem? Why are we on the outskirts, the backwater parts of town? What are we missing? What else should we do? Similar questions. And Jesus' answer, as we heard, comes not surprisingly, if you remember from last week, by way of a few parables. Once again, Jesus speaks to us in riddles, riddles of seeds and fields, plants and harvests. And if you weren't with us last week, I want to remind you that we need to remember the point of all the parables, the reason why Jesus teaches in this way. And at the very end, you heard Stephen read from Mark that he taught like this on a regular basis. The reason why Jesus teaches in this way is that so we will listen, so that we will keep paying attention. Not so we will have all the answers and go off on our own, but so that we will engage him in relationship, so that we will keep on depending upon and following Jesus. So the key with these parables, just like last week, is not so much to glean their meaning, this means that, as much as it is to learn from their shape. Noticing the rhythm within the stories that Jesus tells. Noticing the relationship between things. So what observations can we make specifically from the two stories about seeds and plants? I'd like to suggest a couple of things from what you heard Stephen read that we can notice. First, notice in the, in the stories that Jesus tells, the kingdom of God breaks through. The kingdom of God keeps pressing on. The harvest comes no matter what we do or don't do. The harvest comes, the kingdom comes, whether we sleep, as Jesus puts it, or get up. But the reign of God, as Jesus describes it, the spread of his kingdom comes not by forceful or dramatic intervention. It comes through slow, persistent, and gradual conversion. But pay attention. As Jesus tells the story, while we won't miss when the harvest comes, we won't miss it. When the harvest comes, the harvest comes. There is an end to our waiting. And in the same way, I want to suggest to you, Christmas comes whether we're looking for it or not. Christmas comes whether we're looking for it or not. Jesus will be born. Jesus will be born regardless of whether Mary or Joseph accept that calling. Jesus will be, go- will be born despite the scandal and shame of a pregnancy out of wedlock. Jesus will be born even though the mandate of a government census results in a stable as the best place for a delivery. God is with us, not because of a thunderbolt. God is with us through the whimper of a child. The harvest comes. The incarnation comes while the world sleeps. That's the first thing, this idea that the kingdom and Christmas like it comes regardless. And it comes, and when it comes, it comes. And whether we notice it or not, it's here. And it is not dramatic It's subtle, it's gradual. 
And the other thing we see in these stories is that Jesus tells us that no matter what we perceive, often despite how we judge appearances, the kingdom of God is growing. The mustard seed that Jesus speaks of, it's not the smallest of seeds, actually. It's pretty small. It's not the smallest of seeds, but it's small enough to be taken for granted. But if you're an observant farmer, you don't take the mustard seed lightly. Because as that tiny seed sprouts, it takes over everything. It sucks all the moisture from the other crops. And as it grows, when it really gets going, it's impossible to root out. And so the reign of God, the kingdom, emerges in unexpected ways through surprisingly, if you think about it, ordinary, everyday means. The kingdom, the reign of God, emerges through the regular cycle of sowing and harvesting like a crop. The kingdom, the reign of God, comes through the natural rhythm of a seed that grows into the maturity of a tree. And as we stand on the verge of celebrating Christmas, in the same way, the seed of the kingdom was small and unnoticeable to everyone, unless people were pointed there. A teenage girl and her blue-collar husband, a couple of shepherds and a few astrologers were the only ones to realize what was being planted in a manger in Bethlehem, and they only knew because they were pointed there. And who would have expected I mean, we forget this because we celebrate on the other side of the story, but who would have expected? Imagine if someone just came and told you the Christmas story without the rest. Who would have expected? Who would have imagined that the baby lying in the wood of a manger would grow into the man that would hang on the wood of a cross, standing as the tree of life for all creation, offering shade from sin for all humanity, becoming the shelter from death, a place to nest for all eternity? Who would have imagined that. No one. Beloved, if we couldn't see it easily back then, why do we expect to see it so easily now? If we couldn't have imagined or predicted it then, why do we persist in being so reductionist, so logical, so programmatic now? Because we live between the times between the already of Christ's first coming and the not yet of Jesus' final return. And realizing this, realizing where we are, where we sit, is important because it helps us to understand why observing the season of Advent is so important. It helps us to understand why Advent means something. It helps us to understand why the generic, store-bought, marshmallow world in the winter, sugar plum fairy celebration of Christmas is so incomplete. Advent reminds us that our annual celebration of all the events that led to a manger in Bethlehem are more than just a nostalgic looking back. It's also intended to be a continual, expectant looking ahead. Advent reminds us that the same old world we've always known still needs transforming, that there is still more work to be done, and there is still more work being done in us. The birth of the Christ child does not cast a magical spell rendering the presence of evil ineffectual. The incarnation does not relieve humanity of the reality of the world that we have made of creation. Christmas itself doesn't save us. Christmas itself doesn't save us. The person of Christ, Jesus, saves us. 
entering into the life of that child born in the manger, being in relationship with the one who sacrifices his life for ours, that saves us. Embracing Jesus' challenge, his invitation to follow him, to participate in his redemption and transformation of the world, that's how we experience Christmas all the time. That's how we discover the kingdom of God in the ordinary, everyday, and yet unexpected moments of our lives. Beloved, the world around us changes as we are changed by God. I know this is higher thinking. It's just easier to have, the, again, the simplistic story of Christmas. And, and I think what's helped me to kind of embrace this, just, it's just easier to just be nostalgic rather than to live in this space in between. But over the years, what's helped me to understand Christmas as it's meant to be understood, what's helped me to understand the times in which we live, a helpful picture of what Jesus is getting at teaching here comes by way of another story, another parable, honestly. And it's C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. It's been really helpful for me and specifically, I'm talking about The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, which if most people know anything about C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, they at least know that story. And you'll remember that the, the setup of that story is that there's a white witch who's cast her spell on Narnia. And in casting that spell, she's decreed that it must always be winter and never Christmas. And I just love that. Always winter and never Christmas. For some of us, that's a good way of describing the place many of us feel stuck in, isn't it? Always winter, never Christmas. Longfellow can relate to that. Always winter, never Christmas. And if you remember this story, when the children first arrive in this amazing place, this world of Narnia, all the lands, everything that you can see is covered with snow and ice. But then when Aslan, the true king in the story, who is a royal lion, returns to save Narnia, things slowly begin to change. Lewis reveals this change in a scene with the children and the characters of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And he writes about the appearance of someone, someone who we remember at this time of year, someone whom we celebrate and tell our children about. He writes, he was a huge man in a bright red robe, bright as holly berries, with a hood that had fur inside it, and a great white beard that fell like a foaming waterfall over his chest. Now that the children actually stood looking at him, he was so big, so glad, and so real that they all became quite still. They felt very glad, but also solemn. I've come at last, said he. She's kept me out for a long time, but I've got in at last. Asland is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. And Lucy felt that deep shiver of gladness you only get if you are being solemn and still. Lewis describes the evidence that the spell of the white witch is being broken is not only the appearance of Father Christmas, Santa Claus, but the evidence that the spell of the white witch is being broken is perceived by the children in the melting of the snow and the ice all around them. And what I, why this is so helpful for me is I think this image of snow melting is a simple, insightful metaphor for understanding how Jesus describes here in Mark the times we live in and how the kingdom is coming in our midst. The biting chilliness, the coldness of heart in our world is like the frozen snow that covers the mythical land in Narnia. We often feel like we are frozen in place, that evil covers our lives and our world like unbreakable ice. 
But just as in Narnia, the coming of Christmas is the beginning of the end of winter and the emergence of the eventual arrival of spring. Just like Aslan, God is on the move in Christ. The coming of Christmas is in our world, initiates the gradual melting of the ice, the slow thawing out of creation. But that melting, that melting is an equipping. That melting is an equipping, not just for our own personal transformation. In that scene that Lewis describes, and you can miss it in the midst of all the excitement, he describes how Father Christmas brings presents for everyone, just like we expect. But Father Christmas goes on to say, they are not toys. They are tools. They are not toys. They are tools. Father Christmas explains, saying, bear them well, because the time to use them may be near at hand. Beloved, the first and greatest gift of Christmas is the coming of Christ, and it's an invitation for our participation in the redemption of a planet. It's our challenge of discipleship, our following Jesus into the dawn of a new age. We are given gifts at Christmas time, but they are not toys, they are tools. As Father Christmas leaves, Lewis writes, he calls out, A Merry Christmas, and long live the true king. And is he and his reindeer? And his sleigh are soon out of sight. The truth that Father Christmas has been there, that he really came, his presence lingers through the jingling of sleigh bells, the sound of the bells, the bells of Christmas. I shared with you earlier the tragedies that struck Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's life that caused him to wrestle with the validity of Christmas, the validity of the Christmas message through a poem known as Christmas bells. What I didn't share with you, what some of you may not know, is that the words of that poem became the lyrics for a carol for Christmas. A carol that we don't sing very much anymore, but we should. A carol known as, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. What I didn't share with you, if you're familiar with this carol, is how Longfellow's fear and doubt about Christmas eventually gave way to his faith and expectation in Christ. The sound of the bells... The echoes of the promise of the gospel, the inevitability as Jesus describes it here, the assurance of the coming of the kingdom reached through Longfellow's grief and despair to remind him what Christmas is all about. And it's hope. This has become my favorite Christmas song this season. I'll confess, I've never really listened to it before, but I've been listening to it over and over again because I read to you, maybe go back to it to, to lead you into this. Hear the stanza that I read in that song. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. But here's the stanza that comes immediately after the one that I just read. Then the bells pealed more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fall and fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. What difference does Christmas make? Christmas gives us hope. The simple story of the birth of the Christmas child is the birth of our hope. Our hope in the extravagant grace of a God who comes to us in surprisingly ordinary totally unexpected ways and yet forever life-changing ways. Hope that comes to us in person, in the flesh, our hope in Christ. 
Beloved, the parables that Jesus offers to us here in Mark are stories of hope. Our persistent longings for justice, our persistent longing for freedom, our persistent longing for opportunity and prosperity for all people cannot be denied. They cannot be reduced. They cannot be eliminated because they are innate God-given impulses that seek to be born. They are seeds that our Father has sown in this world that will persist until they are harvested. They are the roots of the tree of life that brought us into this world and that will take us into the next. They are the bells of Christmas that ring, the sound of hope that reverberates inside of us as we look back to the manger, as we look up to the cross, and as we look ahead to the horizon. The hope. The hope of Christmas is the hope of a world made new where peace is everlasting, where goodness can be trusted and relied upon, where reconciliation, that which is broken, being fixed, is possible, even though on so many days and in so many ways, everything seems to be going straight to hell. The hope of Christmas is the hope of a life free from sickness, where bodies don't break down. Some of us need to hear that this morning. The hope of a life free from sickness where minds don't forget. Some of us need to hear that this morning. The hope of a life where hearts can't be broken. Where death doesn't have its day. The hope of Christmas is the hope of a God who comes once to save us from our sin and will come yet again to reveal all things made new. Hope is what Christmas is all about. So I invite you, my brothers and sisters, only days away as the season of Advent draws to a close, may we remember that as good as this Christmas is, we are still waiting. We are still anticipating our best Christmas yet. Let us continue to believe in the spirit of Christmas. Let us continue to receive the spirit of Christ for it is through that continual rebirth of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we find hope, that we find the comfort, the counsel, the conviction to believe in a kingdom that we cannot see, but nonetheless grows in our midst. Let us receive the gift of faith and live by it because God is neither dead nor asleep. Right will prevail over wrong. The kingdom of God has taken root in the soil of our humanity, beloved. And though it may not seem so at times, peace on earth and goodwill to men are more than just platitudes. They are promises upon which we can actually depend. They are the seeds of our hope in Christ that are rising, often unseen, and yet bursting forth nonetheless in the everyday, ordinary, and unexpected places, changing lives transforming our world until one day they will cover the earth. The Kairos cards, I keep bringing them up. They keep coming in. People are emailing me and I, I, I feel guilty. Some of them are so personal, I can't share them with you. But I, I'm, I'm blessed beyond measure and I want to in some way share that blessing with you. Hope is real. Hope is alive. God is on the move. And it's not that God's on the move because suddenly we created a Kairos card. God's always been on the move. 
But we're realizing, we're seeing, we're experiencing some of us that God is on the move because in the midst of either a repeatedly monotonous life or an increasingly chaotic life, we are stopping and saying, no, God is not dead. God is not asleep. Right will prevail. And I will listen. And I will hear. And I will receive. And those who are daring to do something so courageous, they're not hearing silence. They're hearing bells. Beloved, let us listen for the bells of Christmas. They're always ringing. Just waiting for us to listen. God is always speaking. The voice of our God sings to us of his dreams, of his promises, of his visions for our life, for our creation. Let us listen to the bells, the voice of our Father, trusting that as Jesus came the first time, he will certainly come again when the final harvest is ready. Amen and Merry Christmas.